good to see everyone back again this evening, this morning. We did have a great audience of folks, a number of visitors, and I want to encourage you, as we do have visitors from time to time, that we make them feel welcome, that we um, open our arms and let them know how much we appreciate their being here. And if you see someone sitting near you and you don't recognize them, introduce yourself to them. And if they say, I've been attending church here for five years or ten years, then you go ahead and say, I'm sorry, hello, my name is. And uh, uh, so, uh, but uh, thankfully we have a number of visitors, and I'm sure there are people who are looking for a place to worship. They're looking for a place that they can belong, and we'd love to have them be a part of the congregation here at Bybee Branch. This evening, I want to talk to you about the message of Paul at Mars Hill found in Acts chapter 17. And the truth is, is that the gospel message was meant for every culture, every background. It does not matter what the color of your skin will be. It does not matter what kind of rearing that you had, what country you came from. God's word is for everyone. In Mark 16, verse 15, he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Every man needs God's word. In writing to the Romans, he says, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. And so as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Paul was just thrilled with every opportunity that he had, and he was thrilled with the opportunity to preach the gospel in Athens. But there was a challenge here in Athens, a challenge and an opportunity. Many people, had they walked into that city and they saw how idolatrous it was, how worldly they were, they might draw the conclusion there's nobody here who wants the gospel. I don't know how many of you have heard the old story of a a company that sold shoes and they wanted to be able to expand their markets and they sent a man to Africa and they sent him over there and he wrote back, he said, no need to send anybody else, nobody here wears shoes. And then they sent another man and the man that time wrote back and sent a telegram and said, send all the shoes you've got, everybody here needs shoes. You know, when you look at Athens, it might uh, be a temptation on a person's part to say, there's nobody here who wants to worship God. But Paul saw it as an opportunity and he saw it as a challenge. It was an idolater's paradise. As you read Acts chapter 17 and verse 16, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked in him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. If you look at the word given over in the original language, it means really literally filled. You could walk down the streets and there would be an idol on your left hand, an idol on your right hand. And it was there was almost more idols in the city than there were people. An idolater's paradise. But it was also a philosopher's paradise. His brother Willie read to us from Acts 17 and I just want to draw attention to verse 18 and verse 21. He encountered certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And then you look and see in verse 21 that all the people and the foreigners, all the Athenians and foreigners 
who were there spent their time in nothing else but either tell or to hear some new thing. Someone says, hey, I got a new idea. Okay, well, let's talk about it. A place where people would gather together. Paul was provoked to do something. His heart, his enthusiasm was, here's an opportunity. What will I do with this opportunity? Well, he's going to stir up some interest. I want you to look with me at verse 16 and following as we try to focus for just a moment on this. It says his spirit was provoked in him when he saw the city was given over into idols. Verse 17, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. And then we notice that he met the Epicurean and Stoics. And then if you will notice, verse 20 says, For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. Now, when you think about what it says, he reasoned with them. To reason with someone means that there's a little give and take. That is, you present the evidence and someone says, I don't know what you mean by that. Explain it a little bit further. Or maybe someone says, I don't see that. I, I, I see it this way. That's what the original word there for reasoning. He goes into that Jewish synagogue and he reasons with them. But they have an understanding of God's word. But then he goes to the marketplace, to the agora. And there is located at the foot of the Acropolis a large area where people would do business. In fact, I'll give you an artist's rendering of what it might would have looked like. If you look in the center at the top, you'll see the Acropolis where the Parthenon is located. If you look a little bit to the right, you will see a flat rock. That is Mars Hill. And in the foreground in front of you, there are various buildings. One's called the Stoa Vitalis. There are several buildings there. But that's where the people would meet. They would set up shops right along the side of the road or under some of those stoas. be much like what we would see at the Autumn Street Fair. You walk down the street and there's a business after business after business and you could buy leather or you could buy canvas or you could buy fragrances or you could buy just about anything. It was their Walmart. It's a place where a person could go. But it was also a place where people would meet someone and they'd talk. And uh, I took a photo just from almost that same location a few years ago, and you'll see the Acropolis in the foreground. You'll see at the right-hand side the uh, Mars Hill, the meeting place, and right in front of you now there's trees growing, but you can still see the roads and you can still see the bases of those buildings that were there, and people would stop and would speak there. But then Paul was brought to Mars Hill. Mars Hill was an important location, but what made it important was what met there. It was their council. It was their court. And it was where decisions were made. And if you're standing on top of the Acropolis and you're looking down, you can see a picture of the uh, place called Mars Hill. In fact, you can see some folks standing on top of that rock, and it's a rather large rock. Many people could be gathered there. And then there's a group of our folks who was walking up the steps, going on the top of the Acropolis, 
to be able to have a short devotional there. Let me focus now for a few moments on the message at Mars Hill. We want to look at verses 22 through 31 and the message that was delivered by Paul. Number two, we want to look at how this message impacted people and they discussed it, how some responded to it. And then finally, the message decided upon in verse 34. People will make a decision. If you will, let's focus our attention now for just a few minutes from verses 22 through 31. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needs anything, since he gives to all life and breath and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, Let us not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. Truly the times of this ignorance God once overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Now, as we consider this message of Paul, I want to consider it from two different ways. I want us to look at the message of Paul and the way he delivered this message. The manner in which he delivered it. And then I want to look at the content of it. When you start thinking about the way he delivered it, he was personal. Men of Athens, you know, it's so easy for us sometimes to get up and preach a message and talk about people who are a long way off from here and never apply anything to ourselves. To direct our message to people who are not here. The message has to be personal and so was Paul's. His message was pointed That is, I perceive in all things you are very religious. The words very religious literally means the fear of demons. 
That's the reason why the King James translates too superstitious. In their minds, they did not want to offend any god, and so they had to make an altar here to the unknown god, whichever one they didn't know. They just they wanted to make sure they had all their bases covered. It was plain. That is, Paul didn't speak in riddles. He didn't speak in such a fashion that people didn't understand what he was talking about. You know, it's just like the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. In Habakkuk 2 and verse 2, God said, Write a vision and make it plain on the tablets that he who runs may read it. In other words, when you speak, don't speak in riddles. Don't try to speak over people's heads. Don't try to confuse people. Be plain about what you have to say. And Paul was. He was practical. He dealt with their need. They were idolaters. Paul didn't deliver the same message everywhere he went. Yes, there were same basics to it, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but he delivered it differently to the audience in which he had. These people know nothing about the God of heaven, and so he's going to deal with their need. It's going to be prescriptive as well. That is, he explained what they needed to do. Be bad to go in to visit a doctor and say, Doctor, I, I have this ailment. And he says, Sure enough, yeah, you do have that ailment. Hope you get better. You want them to give you a prescription of something to do or something to take, something to make your life better. Paul's message was also persuasive. He provided a motivation for them to act upon his message. You know, if, if the message doesn't motivate you, it doesn't encourage you, it doesn't exhort you to do something, then it misses the point. And then finally, it was productive. It brought about a real reaction in the people. And someone said, yeah, but a lot of them turned away and they didn't listen to him. But still, that was productive. Because the message has been preached and people had the opportunity to either obey it or reject it. But now for a few minutes, I'd like for you to consider the content of this message at Mars Hill. He started with God. If you'll notice particularly again, verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. He goes all the way to the very beginning of God's word, Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, he said, God created the heavens and the earth. If a person does not know God, you have to begin with God. Oh, if you say, well, he went and preached to the Jews when he was in the synagogue. He didn't have to say, no, God. They knew who God was. But he's on Mars Hill. He's dealing with idolaters. He's dealing with people who need to know about God. And what he does is to contrast their gods, little g, with the true real God, the God who creates and not is created. So many times our preaching has to contrast. Here's what the world says. Here's what God says. You remember Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? You have heard it said, but I say unto you, real preaching, as God is pleased with, must do a little bit of contrast. 
And what he does is to contrast the difference between the God who creates and the God who is created. For just a moment or two, I'd like to pause here and look at what David says in Psalm 115 and look at what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 44. Let's go first of all to Psalms 115. Let's look at verses 4 through 8. And David says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle Feet, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter with through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. You think about an idol, and I thought about bringing the little statue I have of, of one of the goddesses that's in my office to show you. Just put it up here and say, you know, it's in the form of a man or the form of a woman. You remember Romans chapter 1, the made in the likeness of the creature rather than the creator. And so these gods are created gold, silver, but what can they do? Absolutely nothing. They have mouths, they can't speak. Ears can't hear, feet can't walk. Now if you think that David is mocking idolatry, Wait till you get to Isaiah. Isaiah really gives you the picture. This is a passage worthy of just reading and digesting as you go. Talks about the idolatry. He cuts down cedars for himself. Takes a cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn. For he takes some of it and warms himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half he eats meat. He roasts to roast and is satisfied. And he warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image, and he falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my God. They do not know nor do they understand for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand and no one considers in his heart nor is there any knowledge or understanding to say I burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I've also baked bread on its coals. I've roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside and cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? You think about the mockery of what just took place. Here's a man who goes and he plants the tree. He cuts the tree down. He uses part of it to cook with. And the rest of it he makes into an idol. 
But then he says twice, he bows down to it. He worships it. He prays to it. He doesn't even think about the same wood that he used to cook with as the same wood he's bowing down to. You see, the people in Athens, these people really need to see a contrast between a God that they made and a God that made them. But when you talk about God making man, God made man in a specific way. He made man to be a worshiping being. A man to seek for God. And then he uses the word that they might grope for him. You think like a person groping in the darkness. You know, the, the electricity has gone off and the lights are out. And you're going to try to go into the kitchen or you're going to try to go into another room and you're, you're trying to find your way. Man's trying to find his way through this world. And God wants man to grope for him that they may find him. And he says, but God's not far from each one of us. You want to find God? You can find God. In John 7 and verse 17, if any man wills to do his will, he shall know of this teaching, whether I speak of God or whether I speak of myself. Or Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11 there. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. A man has to look for God. And thus man is responsible to his creator. And ignorance is no excuse. You might think, oh, but how can we know there is a God? How can we know there's a creator out there? Romans 1 and verse 20, 19 and 20, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse you see if I look at myself and I look and see the way I am made as David would say I am fearfully and wonderfully made just think about the fact that you put a scrape on your car you know what you have to do you have to have someone else to fix it you get a scrape on your skin you know what happens God made you so it fixes itself you think about how you are made and the glory of the, how God created you. And so if there is a God, and there is, and if God is the one we are to fall down and worship, then repentance is not optional, it's required. The times of this ignorance God once overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. And he goes on to say that he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he's ordained. And he's given assurance of this to all men in that he has raised him from the dead. Which leads us into this idea of the message discussed. And I want you to look with me at verse 32, what takes place. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. Now, when you think about the mockery that takes place here, the, the key is the resurrection of the dead. 
And when you think about this idea of mocking, for some people, the idea of a person dying and then coming back out of the grave is just beyond their comprehension. For instance, you remember Acts chapter 25, verse 19, reflecting on Paul's arrest? He said, but he had some questions about him against their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, who Paul affirmed to be alive. Later on in Acts 26 with Festus and Agrippa, Paul said, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Verse 24, and thus he made his defense. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus. To speak words of truth and reason. You know, when we start talking about today, about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's a lot of people who think we're crazy. They, in their minds, we are following foolishness. For just a moment, I'd like to put before you a part of the Humanist Manifesto. There's a number of people in this world who are humanist, and here's what they think about the resurrection of the dead today. Promises of immortal salvation and fear of eternal damnation are both illusory and harmful. They distract humans from present concerns, from self-actualization and from rectifying social injustices. Modern science discredits the historic concepts as the ghost in the machine and the separable soul. Rather, science affirms that the human species is an emergence from natural evolutionary forces. As far as we know, the total personality is a function of the biological organism transacting in a social and cultural context. There is no credible evidence that life survives the death of the body. We continue to exist in our progeny and in the way that our lives have influenced others in our culture. You see, they're saying, there's no life after death. And to tell people that you're either going to have rewards or you're going to have punishment is, they said, illusory and harmful. Why? Because it makes a man live for the future rather than living for today. Well, you see, that's what motivates people. It's what motivates me. I want to look for an eternal home in heaven where there's no sickness, no sorrow, no pain. Some people mock at that idea. They did in Paul's day there at Athens, and they do in 2016. Parents, you send your children off to college and a state university and wait and see if they don't come back and tell you that people will mock what they believe. But for others, more information was needed. For some people, they need to, to hear the message again. They need to, to be able to evaluate it. There's nothing wrong with a person wanting to know the truth. For some are unwilling to make a commitment at the time. You think about the instances in Acts 24, verse 25 with Felix. 
Paul reasoned with him about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Felix was afraid and answered, Go away, for I have a, when I, for now, when I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. Or chapter 26, verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, Almost you persuade me to become a Christian. There are people who hear the message and they say, Well, I don't know. Not now. Not now. I've heard so many people make excuses that when we're studying the Bible together and you get to that point where, what are you going to do? Do you believe what the message says? And some people will say, well, I just don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know that I can live it. Maybe sometime later, not right now. And the truth is many have waited too late. When Ananias stood before the Apostle Paul when he was still called Saul, Acts twenty two sixteen says, And now why are you waiting? Why are you waiting? In just a moment or two, I'm going to extend the Lord's invitation. And the question is, why wait? Get to verses 33 and 34. So Paul departed from among them. That is, he's left Mars Hill. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. These men and this woman joined. The original word means to glue. They attached to Paul. Paul left Mars Hill. He's leaving, and yet these people are saying, we're not going to let you get away from here. We want to know what you're saying, and we believe, and we're going to follow along with you. Think about this man, Dionysius. That's a common name then. wouldn't be too common today, but common among them. The text says he was an Areopagite. That means he was a part of that great council that met there on the top of Mars Hill. The woman Damaris, that's all we know about her. She certainly was a person of note or else Luke would not have mentioned her in this account. Now, the gospel has a universal appeal because there's a universal need. That's the reason why you can preach the gospel in a city like Athens. You can preach it in New York City, or Washington, D.C., or McMinnville, Tennessee. Because every one of us still have that same universal need. The gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection is the foundation of that gospel and God's power to save. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel that I preach to you, which also you received and which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I have preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, was raised from the dead the third day. The truth is, brethren, Paul was preaching the same message in Athens, in Corinth, and everywhere he went, just depended where he started. Romans 1 and verse 16 said, It is the power of God to salvation. 
And 1 Corinthians 1 verse 21 says, It was God's pleasure through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It was God's message. And God today calls for repentance on the part of all of us. Now the question is tonight, are you a Christian? Or are you like those people in Athens? You've heard the message and you know that God is going to judge the world in righteousness, which means he's going to judge you and he's going to judge me. Every time I get in the pulpit, I often look out over the audience and and I see the, the faces of some folks that have not yet obeyed the gospel. And I will tell you, I think in my mind, why not? I know they know what they need to do. Why not now? Don't wait. Don't be like those undecided people in verses 32 and 33. But I also recognize that those of us who are God's children have to continue to repent of sins that arise in our lives. Yes, we all think bad thoughts. We all at times say things we ought not say. And there are times that we do things we ought not do. And as sin arises in our lives, God expects us to repent, just like he told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. And when we repent, and it's publicly known, we need to let our brethren know of our repentance, and we ought to pray for one another. That's what the Lord's invitation is for tonight is to encourage you to respond to Him and to be either restored to faithfulness or become one of His children. Would you come while together we stand and sing?